Good morning. Ah, the crucifixion. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, we pray right now that you would give us ears to hear, ears to hear the good news of the gospel, that you would grant us eyes to see the love that you have for us, and that you would grant us hearts to receive the grace that you have. I speak to you now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the disadvantages that you sometimes have uh, at Sutherland, aside from seeing me more often than perhaps you want to, um, is that when Todd asks me to come and speak, sometimes you land smack in the middle of a sermon series, which is exactly what's happening here. You're landing in the middle of a sermon series. What we've been doing uh, for the last few weeks at St. Timothy's, and will continue to do up until Good Friday, is we've been looking at the last seven words of Christ from the cross. And the last, and the last seven words of Christ from the cross are ultimately words of great hope. From God's absolution of the world when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Through to his drawing of the final breath and saying, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. A complete and utter surrender of self into the hands of a loving God. It's all about hope. There is no room for fear at the cross. There is no hatred. 
There is no condemnation. There is no threatening people with the prospect of eternity in hell. There is no rejection. There is no exploitation of the other. All we see at the cross and hear in the words of Jesus is faith, hope, and love. Now, in our culture today, Christianity finds itself at a crossroads of sorts. Christianity has lost its dominance as the prevailing and loudest voice in the culture. Socially, politically, artistically, and in almost every other realm. It's just true. It is not that the culture has changed so much that it has tuned out the voice of the church, though that may be part of it. More significantly, I think, is that the culture has assimilated so much of the Christian ethic and ethos that it's just become the cultural ethic. Think here of the existence of public schools, public hospitals, free health care, welfare programs for the poor, AA groups, soup kitchens, labor reforms, everything from working conditions, wages, working hours, vacation days, holidays, the elimination of child child labor, workers' rights, virtually every form of social program, even universities, public art, and democracy itself, all have deep roots in Christian faith, ethic, and worldview. Even some of the things that some in the church fought against things like the slave trade and civil rights and women's rights and more recently the protection of the environment, there were Christians on the other side of that too, fighting for the rights of the weak, the marginalized, the exploited, and more recently stronger voices caring for creation. The voice of the church in these and other areas have completely transformed and changed our culture for the good and for the sake of all the people of God even to the point that they no longer see it as a Christian ethic. They just see it as good ethics. But that doesn't completely get us away from where the church finds itself today. Waning influence, a voice on the fringe, declining numbers, we all know the reality. We do have to find a new way to be Christ-like, to be the church in a culture that is now not dominated by the Christian faith as it had been for almost 1,500 years. We have to figure out what it means uh, for someone to come to faith or to become a Christian in a world where most people don't grow up with it as uh, even a basic foundation of their existence, much less even see it as see a need for faith. Now, this is a much larger topic outside the scope of a Sunday sermon, but it is enough, I hope, to help us see that the church is at a crossroads in our culture. Now, one option, one path, the loudest option that we hear a lot from is a faith that is based mostly in fear, seeing the world as a dark and dangerous place. Everywhere we go, the Satan is lurking, just waiting to steal the children of God from the, from the hands of the Father. They cry out for boycotts against people or companies who they deem as being unchristian. They tell us, uh, they, they, they tell us that the other people, those who are other than us, are evil, that their values and their beliefs are vile and dangerous. They say that great, a great threat looms over us, dark clouds and end times are coming. And unless we stand our ground and fight back with the sword and defend Jesus and his gospel, at least as they interpret it, darkness and scariness and 
and destruction will follow. It is a view of faith where while they proclaim that Jesus is victorious and Lord, everything they actually say tells us the opposite. To them, the devil is not a defeated foe. The devil is even more powerful than ever. Jesus is not Lord of all. Secularism, atheism, other faiths are taking over and God is losing ground, they say. Fear, hate, and darkness are the pillars of this faith. And we hear it all the time from those who are on that path. But that's not the only place for us to go at this cultural crossroads for the church. Increasingly, we are hearing people speak again about being light and hope in the world. A faith where even against some very strong evidence like waning power and declining church attendance, there is hope because Jesus is in fact Lord of all creation. He is the Lord of hope. Even in death and suffering, which is very real in our world, Jesus remains Emmanuel, the God who is with us. A faith which says that the other is not our enemy, is not a threat against us. They too are a child created by God, loved by God, and ones for whom he went to the cross to heal and save. It is a faith not of fear, but of faith. It is a faith not of hate creating enemies, but of a love extending healing to the nations. It is a faith not of darkness and despair over the world, but of light and hope in the world. The first of these paths, while tempting and convincing perhaps on the surface, even appealing because they may confirm our own biases, has more to do with Jesus' temptation in the desert in the words of the devil than it has to do with the cross. The second path speaks to us of what we see at the cross. A crucified Messiah dying for the sake of a sinful humanity who rejected him. And what we hear from his words, faith, hope, and love. Today we're going to look at the third word that he speaks. But first, I I want us to back up a bit and hear, remind ourselves of what the first two words Jesus speaks from the cross. Because they're quite different. The first word Jesus speaks from the cross is, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Now, this is not just a request for God to forgive them, for, for, to forgive those who were there right at, the, right at the cross at that moment and forgive them for killing him. But it is a universal absolution for all of it. Father, forgive them all for all of it, from all of man's sins, everything from Adam and Eve to what you did this morning. You know, all the way until he comes again. Father, forgive them all for all of it. And this forgiveness is granted from the cross for three reasons. The first is so that we can repent. But secondly, this forgiveness is spoken over us so that we can actually forgive others who sin against us. And the third reason this forgiveness is spoken from the cross is so that we can seek the forgiveness of those who we have hurt and wounded. Now the second word Jesus speaks is also recorded in Luke, and it's to the thief, or to the criminal that is on his side. And he says to the the criminal, Today you will be with me in paradise. 
Now, this is not about going to heaven and looking down on your loved ones, you know, who are below you and, you know, waving down as, you know, you get to wave up at grandma. That's not what that's about. For the Jew hearing the word paradise, they simply understood it as being part of the place of the dead. There was two places of the dead. There was Hades and there was paradise. There was no more, it was no more complicated than that. This word, though, reminds us who Jesus is. He is Messiah He is Lord, he is King, he is Yeshua, the one who saves. And what is most important in what Jesus says in that sentence is not today, and it's not in paradise, but it's with me. Today you will be with me. He is Emmanuel. He is the God who is with us, with us even in our suffering and in our death. For even death cannot separate us from the forgiving love of God. And this brings us to the third word from John's Gospel. Jesus says, Woman, behold your son. And then he says to the disciple, Behold your mother. Now this, to me, seems like a peculiar line to record. The context is the same as the first two. Jesus has been led off to the place of the skull. He's carrying his own cross. He's about to be crucified. Uh, there's two other criminals there. there. There's no mention of the first two words that Jesus, that Luke include, includes in his gospel, but that's okay. Not all the gospels record the same thing. There is a sign hung over him declaring that this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Even though some people protest, Pilate says, I'm the boss. I've written what I've written. And the soldiers are there too, doing what they normally do, dividing the spoils of the dying. The job didn't pay that well. It didn't have a lot of perks. So you took them where you could, and you got to take the dying person's worldly possessions. And then John writes this. So the soldiers, they were doing these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, on the one hand, we shouldn't be surprised that his mother and the other Marys are there. They've been following him as his disciples for some time. And though you might remember there was a time when Mary was, his mother was a little skeptical of what Jesus was doing and wanted to take him home and have him locked up because she thought he might be crazy. She seems to have gotten over that by this point and has become a disciple, a follower of Jesus. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby her, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Again, at first, this seems that what Jesus is doing is showing compassion and love for his mother, making sure that she will be taken care of once he's gone. He's dying. He's the eldest son. He's responsible for her. Now, it's a little strange, since Jesus does have brothers, and in Jewish custom, they would then be in charge of taking care of her. But, you know, at this moment, the beloved disciple, one who Mary knows quite well, is standing nearby, so perhaps it is enough for Jesus just to make the common, extend his compassion. None of that is strange. But what is strange is if that's all it is, if that's all Jesus is saying, it's an act of compassion, then why would John bother to record it? The Gospels, we're told even in John's Gospel, many more things that Jesus did. He said many more things. He taught many more things. They just can't be recorded. It's not practical to record three years' worth of ministry. 
Parchment was a costly thing. So anything writers wanted to record had to be important. It had to be something they thought would further their themes, further their purpose. So if this is Jesus simply expressing love and compassion to his mother as he dies, what is the greater purpose? How does it advance John's gospel? Well, first I want you to think back to another another scene in John's gospel. Is there another scene in John's gospel that this little interaction reminds you of? Think near the beginning where Jesus turns to his mother and once again calls her woman. What scene is that? The wedding at Cana. Right? You remember that scene. Jesus is at this wedding and Mary, his mother, comes up to him and says, Jesus, they have no wine. They're about to be embarrassed. They've run out. And Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Then in John 17, at the beginning of what we call the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, Father, my hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And so now here we have Jesus upon the cross. His hour has come. The hour to glorify the Father. The hour to reveal His kingdom purpose and mission. The hour which marks the end of His life on earth but which also begins the birth of the work of the disciples and the church. The hour to begin new creation. Any mother knows, in the travails of new birth, first comes suffering and pain. In John's Gospel, this image of the the end of the old creation And the beginning of the new is particularly strong. John weaves this image throughout his gospel. It even begins with, in the beginning was the word. And one of the final words Jesus speaks from the cross in John's gospel is, it is now finished. Mary Magdalene even goes to the tomb, the end place, on the first day of the new week, while it was yet dark, when darkness was over the face of the earth, only to mistake Jesus for a gardener, the image of God in the book of Genesis. And in this new creation that Jesus is beginning and initiating, a lot is going to be different. The sacrificial system is going to come to to an end, for Jesus is the last, final, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. No lamb, no goat, no bull will have to die for us anymore. Another thing that will be different is that the presence of God will no longer be tied to the temple in Jerusalem. But it will be tied to the temple of the Holy Spirit, which will be sent to reside in all those who believe and are baptized. And soon, Jews and Gentiles will be grafted into one new creation, the church. And the church will be the body. The church will be the ongoing presence and incarnation of Jesus in the world. But what does this have to do with John recording? When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son, and then to the disciple, Behold your mother. I think that in the midst of dying, Jesus is giving us another epiphany, another revelation of who he is and what the kingdom of God is like, what the kingdom of God will be on earth. He's giving us a glimpse 
of what will be the body of Christ. Mary, his mother, and John, the disciple whom he loves, are for us icons. And I use icon intentionally because they are more than mere image or simple symbol. They are more real, more tangible. They are more than just a metaphor. They are a representation for us of the faith that they actually represent. Mary is the Theotokos, the God-bearer. Literally, she bears God. She carries him and gives birth to him. Now, we are not to be the Theotokos as Mary was, but we are called to be bearers of Christ. We are called to be bearers of his image into the world. Where there is a Christ follower in the world in any situation, there too is the presence of Christ. For the followers of Jesus are the image bearers of Christ, both of his cross and of his resurrection. As Jesus was sent into the world to be Emmanuel in the world, So too, when the Holy Spirit is given to us, we are sent into the world to be his presence, his ongoing incarnation. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are his representatives in the world. And where an ambassador is, there too is the presence of the country or the kingdom or the king which he or she represents. Wherever you are, at work, with a family, at a grocery store, in a board meeting, with, at your child's school, in a hospital, in a political debate about topics such as immigration or human rights or the environment, or even simply chatting with your neighbor over a beer, you are in that moment Mary. You are the bearer of Christ, his image, his light, his hope, and his love. Mary is an icon for us at the foot of the cross. But image-bearing and presence is not all there is to being the people of God, sons and daughters of the heavenly kingdom, to the beginning, to being the church, to being the body of Christ. There's more. And so, there is the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, too, is an icon. For he is a, he is a disciple, an apostle, the sent one, as we are all sent ones, too to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. He is to talk about Jesus, who he was, what he taught, and what he did. In your going about your daily life, in you you being Mary, in you being a bearer of God's image in all situations, baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all the things I've commanded. So there's the apostle. Make disciples. Bring with you wherever you go healing and salvation. Wherever you are, build up hope. Wherever you are, extend love. Bring comfort to those who grieve, even grieve with them. Be meek and gentle with all that you meet. Be merciful. Be enlargers of the circle of welcome. Be makers of peace. Bring healing to the nations and restore creation's wholeness and goodness. Together, Mary, the mother of Jesus, the bearer of God, And John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the apostle sent by Jesus. Together, these two serve as icons for us, representing the kingdom of God and the church as the body of Christ. If only one of them was at the cross, we would only have half a church. But the two together, 
like vine and branches, sheep and shepherd, bread and wine, body and blood. Together they form one complete whole. The word bearer and the bearer of the word together. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Theotokos, behold your apostle. And then he turned and said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Disciple of good news, behold your image bearer. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. From that hour, what was to be the church, the witness bearers, the hands and the feet of Jesus, the body of Christ began to form. And what formed came not out of darkness, hate, or fear, for that is not found at the cross. But instead, what formed came from faith, hope, and ultimately love. Jesus is love. The cross shows us the full extent of his love. The two greatest commandments are love God and love neighbor. Jesus said to his disciples on the night that he was about to be betrayed, a new commandment I give to you, to love one another as I have loved you. Here in this scene, we see that love for one another lived out. One of the very first stories in Genesis is that of the first children of Adam and Eve. You might remember this story. Out of jealousy and spite, out of fear and darkness, Cain kills his brother Abel. And God arrives on the scene and says to Cain, Do you happen to have any idea where your brother is? And what does Cain say in response? What does Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for the other? Well, the answer from those who think it is necessary to build divisions, walls of protection from an evil and dark world, those whose gospel is based in fear and darkness, answer this question the way Cain would have. No, I am not my brother's keeper. But the answer we get from Jesus through the two icons, Mary and John, is yes. We are our brother's keeper. And so their gospel is one of faith, hope, light, and ultimately love. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I want to close now with a prayer adapted from St. Ephraim of Syria. Will you pray with me? Lord and Master of my life, grant not unto me the spirit of idleness, of discouragement, of darkness, of lust for power, or of vain speaking. Grant rather unto me, thy servant, the spirit of chastity, of meekness, of patience, of hope, of light, and of love. Yea, O Lord and King, grant that I may perceive my own transgressions and judge not my brother. For blessed are you unto the age of ages. Amen.